Hello everyone, it's good to be here again. Um, at the moment, I'm only coming tonight to church when I'm preaching, but I should come more often, I think. And meet you. Yes, thanks, Stuart. <laughs> uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Uh, thank you for the rain that's trying to sprinkle down on our uh, very parched and dry earth. We pray that would continue, even though it might ruin some plans we have. Um, uh, we do pray as we come to your word now that you'd lead us to understand it and to obey it. I mean, there's a chapter in the second book of Samuel that begins with these words, which I always thought were interesting. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. Now think about it, if you go to war, you'd think it'd keep on going the whole time rather than sort of having a break. But apparently in the old days and even today, there are seasons for war. You hear about a spring offensive. Um, in Afghanistan, for example, when the Taliban don't fight during the wintertime, then they come out in spring. And back in these days, uh, here we are with David, and it's a time when kings go off to war, and we read on, it says, David sent out Joab and the king's men, but he stayed at home. David's been king for a little while. He, perhaps he's getting lazy. Perhaps he should have been out leading his men. But rather than leading his men, uh, David goes up onto his rooftop and he sees a woman and she's having a bath. Maybe he should have looked and then looked away. In the New Testament, there's a group of guys that you sometimes uh, hear about in, in other literature apart from the New Testament, but sort of uh, literature around the time called the bruised and battered Pharisees. And they were a group who, when uh, they saw sinners or when they were tempted to sin, actually closed their eyes so that they, they wouldn't be tempted. And they were called bruised and battered because they kept on running into things. Uh, so they'd stop sinning. Uh, David didn't run into anything. David kept on looking and then invited Bathsheba up to his palace and began a sexual relationship and then we know where it went from there. Um, Bathsheba's husband came back. David tried to persuade her to sleep with his wife. He wouldn't. In the end, he had him killed. Uh, David thinks he's got away with adultery. He thinks he's got away with murder. Until a prophet called Nathan turns up and decides to tell David a little parable, which David gets caught up in and says, the man who did that ought to be, you know, really reckoned with. And then Nathan says, you are that man. And suddenly David feels the shame of all the things that he's done and the nakedness of being named as an adulterer and a murderer. Psalm 51, which was just read for us, is uh, the result of that process of coming to grips with what you've done wrong in the sight of God. And we're going to be looking at it today, asking the question, can the murderer and the adulterer, the child molester, can the terrorist, can the rapist or the professional hitman, be forgiven? Can you be so bad that you can be forgiven? I used to ask the kids at school, would Adolf Hitler, Pol Pot, uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, could they be forgiven if they repented at the last minute? Usually the answer was no. Because people have this opinion that, uh, you know, if the bad outweighs the good, then the bad always wins. No, no matter what you do at the end of life, even if you repent, it's too late because the bad is just so bad. Well, let's see what the psalm says as David looks at his blackest moment 
and he explores the magnificence of God's forgiveness. His prayer in this psalm, you'll see, is a right response to what happens when God confronts us with our sin. So I'm going to put it on the screen today. We're going to have a look at it bit by bit and we'll just go through it. And we're not going to look at that bit or that bit. Psalm 51, here we go. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Have mercy. There's no claim here, is there? It's not an equal, even though he's king, talking to God. He's not saying, God, can we do a deal here? Uh, You know my life has been pretty good and I've only done a few bad things. Perhaps the good can outweigh the bad here. No, David doesn't have that sense of of God. It's not a God that you can carry around in your pocket and bring out when you want. This is a God he knows as the creator of the world and the master of all things. And so he pleads to God to have mercy on him. And he wants God to do three things for him, as you see here. Three word pictures used to underline the seriousness of what David's done. You'll see them there. Uh, Blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Now, in the original language, transgressions has this idea of rebelling against authority, doing something that you're told not to do. Now, uh, those who are teenagers here and young gentlemen over there, you always do what mum and dad tell you to do, don't you? Yeah, that, I can see the nod, yeah. Well, there's one liar. <laughs> we, we grow up, don't we, uh, rebelling against authority. Um, one lady here this morning was telling me about uh, one of the problems she has with uh, children who, who are changing. And uh, we had a good chat and then we prayed afterwards. Uh, but it, it's true for, for lots of us, isn't it? that uh, we see in our children something that we thought, wow, what's happened? Transgressions, standing up to someone and saying, no, I don't want to. Uh, When I was younger, about the boys' age there, in between some of them there, uh, I uh, went up Blue Mountains with my mum and dad and mum and dad said, we're going to Echo Point. Now, look, let me lay down the law for you here. I don't want you to go near the lookout without one of your parents. So I had two brothers. We all ran to the lookout. Uh, they were younger than me. I thought I'd prove how brave I was. I climbed over the fence. I stood on the other side of the lookout, which is like about that much, and I put up my hands and said to mum and dad, look, no hands. Yeah, I can see you shaking your head. Yeah, that's what my mum and dad did, and then they hit me. <laughs> I remember the whack. Yeah, the punishment deserved the crime. I rebelled against what they told me to do explicitly. And uh, David says, look, I've done that. Uh, The second word picture we get here is uh, David speaks of sin as an in-ground stain that can't be got out. Um, You get those stains sometimes, don't you? Um, In the day when uh, Jeff and I were young uh, men and we had children and we had cloth nappies, not the the ones you have today where you wrap up the poo and throw it away. These are the ones where you had to scoop out the poo, put it in the toilet or wherever it went, and then you wash the nappies. Well, one day I was pretty tired and I forgot to scoop out the poo. I just threw it all in the washing machine. And my shirts. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And I didn't realise it till I got everything out and everything was this strange colour and a stranger smell. David says... 
I want to be washed clean. I want the dynamo brought out, the extra, uh, extra strong dynamo. And uh, I want to be clean and the stain removed. Make me pure, he says. Third word picture. Cleanse me from my sin is taken from uh, the worship service and the whole cultic practice of being pure, being purified. Uh, back in those days... Uh, sins likened to a contagious disease like leprosy. And uh, if you wanted to, if you're a leper and you wanted to join the community again and be free from your leprosy, which rarely happened, uh, there was a purification ceremony you went through to join in with God's people again. And David said, I, I want that. I don't want to be ostracised. I don't want to be on the outside. I want to be in the inside. But to do that, I need to be forgiven. So like the leper who came back to Jesus to be healed, uh, David wants to be clean and made whole again. So here we are, sin, rebellion, stain, disease. It looms like a large shadow over the whole of David's life. He can't escape it. He says, I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Well, in these opening verses, David appeals to the mercy and love of God. He says, God, I know you're a faithful God. I know you're a merciful God. And I want to be forgiven. Now he lays out his burdens in front of God. Although his sins are adultery and murder, there's something else that troubles him. Have a look at verse 4. Against you only have I sinned. Now David sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his people as their king. But David doesn't see that. He sees in the light of the big sin, capital S, it's against God. Remember Potiphar in the Old Testament? He had a slave called Joseph. And one day Potiphar's wife decided that Joseph would make a good toy boy. Someone to have a little sexual relationship with just for fun for a while. So she chased him for a while, eventually caught him. And Joseph said to her these words, which I think are wonderful words to say to someone who's trying to chase you. Um, uh, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God okay that's the sin it's not just against you and Mr Potiphar the sin is against God I know the rules I know what's right and wrong and I don't want to break God's law sin small s are only the symptoms of a much deeper problem that deeper problem comes from within Along with our parents' blue eyes and brown hair, we inherited something even more sinister, and that is the ability to sin. Hand up anyone here who's in a class to help you sin better. Anyone? No? Anyone in a class where you're not sinning well enough and you need to have a bit more practice? No, it's the one thing we get 100% in, isn't it, at school? It's the one thing we're good at because we can't help ourselves. It's ingrained into our nature. It's not a matter of change the environment and you won't have these problems or fix up the country and give us more money and the problems go away. No, sin is there in each of us. It basically stems from the fact that we're rebels from birth and we want to be independent. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. God said, don't eat the fruit. They said, we'd like to be like you. We want to be like you. We want to be independent creatures. We don't want to listen to your rules, regulations. We want to do our own thing. And we've been doing it ever since. And adultery and murder are just extreme expressions of that sin in David's life. He did other things. 
when his family life was a mess after this. There were repercussions. But David asked for forgiveness for this particular sin. Martin Luther once said, There but for the grace of God go I. In other words, given the right circumstances, any one of us can end up in a position where we do the, uh, the worst possible thing we could think of. We're not beyond uh, great sin in our lives. Um, sometimes you see on TV these scenarios saying, if the world were to end and we knew about it, what would life be like? I saw one the other day which said, if, if uh, the weather, uh, the uh, forecast actually made it so that uh, we went up four degrees in temperature, what would life be like? And they estimated that we'd all start looting and all the... the the moral uh, fabric of society would disappear because we want to protect ourselves and we'd become more like animals than human beings. Uh, there are many people in jail today who are Christians, not because they got converted there, but rather because they made some terrible mistake. They, they made some wrong choice somewhere and it ended up uh, having to uh, be in a place that they didn't want to be. Well, verse 6 as we come to uh, the middle of this section, brings us to the, uh, the heart of this chapter. It's the enormous gulf between uh, what God desires and what David's like. David says, You desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. But David's life has been filled with deceit and trying to get away with it. And trying to blame other people for the sin he committed. And so David asks God to cleanse him, cleanse him with hyssop. Hyssop was a plant used for uh, cleansing lepers. Didn't always work, but that's what David's saying. I, I really want to be cleansed and made new. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. If you've been in the snow in sunshine, you can go blind with the snow, it's so bright. And David wants to be that bright again. Uh, this isn't a half-hearted measure, is it? It's not like removing a stain from the carpet and saying, you know, I can hardly see it. That's good enough. No, David wants everything changed. He wants to be renewed and uh, made new again. Which brings us, of course, to uh, these verses, which we know well, because many a song has come from these verses. David sees the only way to be made new is for a radical change to take place in the inside of his life. Not just an outward wash, but the inside. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. What's stopping David from committing adultery again? Well, only that renewal from the inside. Uh, so that's what David prays for here. He longs for a fresh start and an obedience that's prompted by God's spirit. Remember Saul, his predecessor? God's spirit was taken from Saul and Saul, the end of his life, was a, was, a, was a terrible shame to look at that man and see what he once was and what he'd become when God's spirit had left him. So David longs for a new. He longs to come back to God to please him and to serve him. He doesn't want to be tempted in the same way that he was before. You know, Satan hones in on our weaknesses. 
Tamara prayed today that we need to, you know, claim Jesus' authority over Satan. And uh, Satan, on the other hand, is looking at the weaknesses we have, particularly in those areas, temptation, where he wants to get a, a leg in. Uh, rugby league coaches are a bit like that, not like saying they're all like Satan, but they look at weak spots. I, I'm sure the, the coaches of the Stillman Cowboys a couple of weeks ago were looking at tapes of the opposition looking at their weak spots, like this guy can't catch a ball when it goes into the lights, this guy tackles with the left shoulder, this guy does that. And in their game plan, they look at the weaknesses of the opposition. And Satan does that and uh, David's asking that uh, Satan be taken away and that he be not led into temptation anymore. That's what Jesus told us to pray, didn't he? Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Create in us a desire to please you all the time. Finally, as we come to these last couple of verses in, in this psalm, uh, we read uh, these words. Open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You know, when you've done something and you're caught out, what mum and dad say to you, did you do it? Often we just can't even speak. We know the guilt's there, and to admit the guilt means all the ramifications come out. David's ramification was he felt out of sorts with his people, especially with the congregation that he was worshipping with. And so he prays to God, open my lips so that I can once again join in praise of you. He doesn't like the silence. And we read there that God desires a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you'll not despise. It's not the outward change God looks at. He looks at that change of the heart and he wants people to be restored and forgiven and renewed because they ask for God's forgiveness. I think this psalm teaches us two really important things. One is the nature of sin and how interesting it is. And secondly, God's power to forgive. Just for a minute, I just want to look at the nature of sin for a second. And I want to take you to a book in the New Testament, the book of Romans, and look at what Paul says about nature of sin. In Romans, uh, Paul begins to outline in chapter 1 uh, one of the great themes of that book, that is he talks about what sin's like and what's God done to overcome sin. And uh, as he looks at sin, he takes us deeper and deeper into ourselves and what we're like. And in the opening verses of chapter 1, he points out that uh, sin empowers us to suppress the truth about things. So we look at something and we say, that's not true. Have a look at the quote. Truth sounds like hate to those who hate the truth. I think that's very interesting because it seems to uh, uh, fit in quite clearly with what Paul's arguing thousands of years ago. When the truth is suppressed, then we embrace the lie and we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And we make God substitutes. So the root of sin is preferring anything above God. Sin, as David acknowledged, is not mainly about what you do or don't do, it's about who you are. Before you became a Christian, uh, sin is not some alien power that invades you when you're a teenager and changes you. Sin is always there. It's not alien to your nature. 
It's our exchange of God for God's substitutes, whether it be a Falcon or a Holden or a football team or a soccer team, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever, money, power, possessions. We suppress the truth about God. Our hearts are hostile to God. It is who we are to the bottom of our hearts until we know Jesus and we're renewed and we ask God to create in us a new heart and he does that. The Gospel of John, and I hope you can see it on that screen over there, not that one, uh, Jesus says, we're guilty sinners not because we are victims of the darkness but rather we're lovers of the darkness. We love to hide from God and do those things in the dark that we think God can't see. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus goes into some detail about what we're like. Again, he says, sin's not a surface thing. He goes on and says this, for from within, out of a man's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. By our natures, we are opposed to God. By ourselves, we can no more stop sinning than a spider stops spinning a web. When we try to be good, we fail. When we know what's right, we do the wrong thing. And when we sense the warmth of temptation, we hone in it like a heat-seeking missile. We fail God. We fall short of his standards. We break his rules. We fling mud in his face. And do we really think we can do a bargain with him? Well, I hope some of you know the phrase, uh, being uh, sent to Siberia. Anyone heard that before? A few people. Um, for, for those who don't know, it means being ostracised, being put out. Uh, it might mean being in a group of friends and um, they put you out of the friendship group. It might be unfriended on Facebook or something else like that, social media. Um, for those who first heard the words, it was a death sentence. Uh, in Russia, if you were sent to Siberia, you rarely came back to tell the tale. Uh, it was a place of incredible cold and harshness and uh, political prisoners and those who were uh, in war who were prisoners there were sent off into Siberia never to come back. Alexander III was a Tsar in Russia in the late 19th century and he was known for his harshness and uh, his persecution of his own people as well as the Jews. He's a very hard man. He married a lady who was the complete opposite. Maria, his wife, uh, and we've got a picture of them there, uh, by contrast, lived a life of generosity and compassion. Now, Nicholas the Tsar, sorry, Alexander the Tsar, one day uh, wrote a, a note, which he often did, a, a, an order, and he signed it, Alexander, condemning a prisoner to uh, Siberia. The note looked like this. Pardon impossible to be sent to Siberia. It's pretty small, isn't it? That's a man's life. That's his family's life. Send him off. Maria, his wife, came upon the note. She looked at it and realised the implications of what it meant. So unbeknown to her husband, she did one thing grammatically to that note. 
What do you think she did to change that man and his family's life? If you're here this morning, you can't tell. There's a jelly bean for you. She changed the comma. Pardon. Impossible to be sent to Siberia. When Jesus met a woman who was taken in adultery and she was about to be stoned and the Pharisees were standing around gloating and Jesus scribbled on the ground and then he released the woman. He changed the comma. He pardoned her. When Jesus spoke to the thief on the cross, he changed the comma. When Jesus looks at you and I and we come to him and we confess our sins, he changes the comma. He says to us, uh, come to me all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And we can only have true rest when we confess our sins to God. We know him and we love him. I don't know about you, but there might be something in your life right now that you found it really difficult to think you could ever be forgiven for. Might have been something in the past, something you thought, something you did something that you've been wrestling with and you think, I'm right with God with everything else, but if anything's going to keep me out of heaven, it's going to be this. Can God really forgive me? Can I be washed whiter than snow? Can I feel like David and say, cleanse me and, and make me new? Well, tonight's the night when you can do that. You can come to God right now, confess your sins quietly to him and ask God to forgive you and ask God to create in you a new heart so that you can sing praises with the congregation to his name. Why don't we spend a time in, in prayer now and a time in silent prayer as we just again acknowledge our sins before God and then I'll finish in a second. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you forgive us that through Jesus' sacrifice you take away all our sins and you throw them into a black hole never to be seen again. Jeremiah and Isaiah, the prophets in the Old Testament remind us that you have thrown away our sins as far as the east is from the west. You've removed them from us. Father, we thank you for this and we pray that we would be blessed tonight as we sing praises to you knowing that we are forgiven through Jesus' death for us. Amen. Uh, time for questions. Anyone got any questions they want to ask? I see one there, but the hand's gone down. Um, we can be forgiven... Um, does that mean that we'll be free of the consequences of our of our sin? So, yeah. what what's the difference there? How does that work together? So, yeah, can you can you yeah. say something about that? I think it's like if you had a cancerous appendix and it's taken out, um, and so the the cancer's gone, so it's not a life and death situation anymore. But there's still a scar there. And so the scars remain and we've got to deal with those and sometimes those scars are to do with the relationships that we've hurt and we need to go back and, and, and ask forgiveness. I, I had a guy at school who was a teacher there for some years who had left school and came back to me and, and wanted a, a chat and he came to me and he said, look, 
I just want to ask for your uh, forgiveness because I came to your room and I took some money. I've asked God to forgive me, but I need to deal with, with you. Will you forgive me? And I think they're the sorts of things that uh, are the scars that we bear, but scars heal hmm. and we can move on. Thanks, Stu. Anyone else? Okay, thank you.